yet again with Mr. Howard Bloom. The man studies the global brain, the Lucifer principle. He proves and disproves God in a single book. And now we're talking about the Lucifer principle. And I will have you I'll have you introduce yourself in a second because we can't go an episode without your introductions because <laughs> second to possibly Charlie Duke, who's walked on the moon, your introduction is the most insane of any recurring guests. Actually, let's just jump into it. Mr. Bloom, please introduce yourself. So I'm the author of seven books. Um, Channel 4 TV in Britain says I'm the Einstein, Newton, Darwin, and Freud of the 21st century. And uh, Gear Magazine says I may just be the next Stephen Hawking, except I'm not just interested in physical matter. I'm interested in the human spirit. Um, and, uh, oh, God, the list is really long. My, my expertise, uh, look, first of all, I got into science at the age of 10 in microbiology and theoretical physics. So I've been involved in science for a long, long time. And I was curious about the passions inside of us, the gods inside of us, the ecstatic experiences inside of us. And I was lucky enough to be able to go into a field I knew nothing about, popular culture, and big, build the biggest PR firm in the music industry, and work with Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, the guy with Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, uh, Z, uh, uh, Joan Jett, and a whole bunch of others. But... It was, for me, a scientific field expedition, a scientific expedition into the forces of history. It was a, a deep dive by a science thinker into the dark underbelly where new myths and movements are made. And then I went back to my science in 1988. And uh, since then, I've been published or have given published in peer-reviewed journals or given lectures at scholarly conferences on 12 different scientific fields from quantum physics and cosmology um, up to uh, evolutionary biology, uh, neuroscience, um, information science, governance, and aerospace. Um, I run four aerospace groups, four space groups. One of them includes the former governor of New York State, David Patterson, who, like me, is a Democrat, um, Robert Walker, the former head of the House Science Committee, who is a Republican, um, three-star general Steve Quast, who, like all good military Men does not identify an affiliation uh, politically, and a guy named Newt Gingrich, whose political affiliation is well known. Um, and last week, two of the members of my group had a meeting with uh, Bill Nelson, who's the new head of NASA. And in our next meeting, we'll debrief them um, on that meeting. Meanwhile, there's a Howard Bloom Institute, and uh, it's dedicated to keeping my peculiar ways of thought, my new tools of perception, my um, uh, my new lenses through which I try to allow you to see everything inside of you and everything around you from a vastly unexpected point of view. And so that uh, this group is dedicated to keeping me, my ideas alive. When I croak, I'm 78 years old. I did 1,250 vibrational plankings this morning. Nonetheless, <laughs> I'm 78 years old. I have to prepare for these things. And that group will launch on November 10th with an appearance on Coast to Coast AM, in other words, 545 radio stations, and with an NFT, non-fungible token, um, with a million units of cryptocurrency dedicated to it from one of our founders, uh, Andrew Hacker, the founder of Thought AI, which is a company, an artificial intelligence company, based on my theories of how complex adaptive systems um, work. And we'll have two pieces of music coming out um, 
So that I think I must be missing something because there are so many things around and we've got an omnology project up and running within the Howard Bloom Institute. Kepler Space University has asked us to create a four to six week program on, on omnology. And we're going to try to spread that not only to other universities, Phi Beta Kappa in Minneapolis, for example, has expressed interest in uh, giving this course to its members. Um, we want to establish this not just in universities, but in high schools and in, um, in grammar schools. Um, we want to take it to kids because the person leading that program got involved in science at a younger age even than I. She got involved at the age of five and she was interested in so many things at that age and people were putting her down for her range of interests. You know, it's like when your father sits you down in your sophomore year of college and says, Tommy, um, I know you're interested in our history, you're interested in neuroscience, and you're interested in film. you got to make up your mind. Are you going to be an art historian? Are you going to be a neuroscientist? Or are you going to be a filmmaker? And until you make up your mind, you're nothing. And omnology is there so that you can say, fuck you, Dad. I have three areas of curiosity. Those are the source of my passions. Um, I'm going to dive into all three of those fields simultaneously. Why? Because people who are multidisciplinary and see big pictures that people who dig a deep gopher hole um, with a narrow specialization cannot see. And when I hit the age of 40 and all my friends hit the age of 40, the women are going to be planning elaborate divorces in order to find out who they are because they have no idea why they're on this planet. The men are going to be buying little red sports cars and picking up blondes and cheating on their wives because they have no idea why they're on this planet. Um, I will just be coming back from the wilderness of my multiple curiosities with my first answers. And while my friends feel they're at the end of their lives, I will know I'm at the beginning of mine. So that's omnology. But Cheyenne G., who's running that program within the Howard Bloom Institute, got interested in a whole mess of things when she was five. She's uh, uh, an incredibly energetic person. And she wants five-year-olds like her to know that they are justified in the varieties of their interests. Right now, they're told they have ADHD. That's a sickness. Analogy is there to say, no, you don't have a sickness. You have an advantage um, because of your ability to handle multiple things at once. Um, so those are some of the programs um, happening within the Howard Bloom Institute. I will never, I will never tire of your introductions. They are, <laughs> they are the, the more intelligent Forrest Gump is is that's what it is it's so with with the and as i always say because i am proud of it my my nickname for you as we've done over the last two podcasts is the moonwalking stephen hawking and it's because yes, like it's because most people well, not most people most people won't experience either right it's like michael jordan though so most people won't ever play professional sports very rarely does someone play in the nba and the mlb it's very rare that someone would ever accomplish what you've accomplished, but they're in such wildly separate fields to the, you know, to the naked, to the naked eye in which you elaborate in your books. They're actually the same, but either, you know, you know, Bette Midler, Michael Jackson, ZZ Top or, you know, quantum mechanics, but the two never really meet, but you're someone who does do it. And with the Lucifer principle, which we're going over today, which I'll put in the description, another fantastic book. It it actually plays perfectly into last Friday I interviewed Richard Rhodes, right? Making of the atomic bomb. But his book right. about 
Masters of Death, the SS Einsatzgruppen, the precursors to the concentration camps, the mobile death squads, right? The Wehrmacht would go in and invade the country. And then a week later, the Einsatzgruppen would come in. They would round up all the Jews, bring them out of town, shoot them in the back of the head and bury them in pits. And it's, it's... is easily the most disturbing book I've ever read. It not, nothing has truly made me cold inside like that book. But there's, to me, it's also insanely important because, and you go into this with the Lucifer principle, and it's, it's going to take me a minute, but hang on, I'll, I'll tie it in. It's very easy to look back at history and you see an evil person, a Stalin, a Hitler, whatever. And it's very easy to look at them and go, that's just a bad guy. They're evil. Fuck them, right? Timothy McVeigh bombing the Oklahoma, right? Muhammad Atta, you know, flying the plane in the North Tower. You look at them and you go, fuck those guys, right? And it's very easy. And in a way, it is, there is a form of laziness to it because we don't, and by no means do I feel sympathy for any of them, but we should, just like a school shooter or a rapist or whatever, there's something in us that should at least try to understand what made that happen, right? They didn't just come out of the womb with their evil mustache. Nah, I'm going to invoke. Some people do. There are some psychopaths. But it's very easy and intellectually lazy to just go, communists were bad. Nazis were bad. They're just pure evil. And they are. I'm not trying to make any less of the millions they have massacred. But what really opened my eyes in Rhodes' book was that the SS Einsatzgruppen, you read their diaries, you read their transcripts from their testif- testimonials at the Nuremberg trials, and you listen to how they were, and this is how I described it, and this is perhaps invoking the Howard Bloom in me, the hydrophobic effect, right? And in college, we'd learn about it, and the, these molecules hate water, right? Hydrophobia. But then you realize there's actually, it wasn't the hydrophobia, it was rather that they had a greater affinity for each other than the water. So what appeared as hydrophobia was actually they were just bonding together, right? Very much like the global brain. If you zoom out and you look at all the roads, you go, oh, there's the circulatory system. But the reality is we're just paving driveways and shit, right? It takes on a bigger, more meta synergistic form. With the SS Einsatzgruppen, demons though they are, if you read their journals and their testimonials, it's all about, I don't want to shoot this woman. I don't want to shoot... And there, are, there were some psychopaths that enjoyed it. This isn't to let them off the hook. They said, but if I don't kill them, they're going to grow up and kill my kids. And what they were doing is they would talk to each other and say, we have to do this. We have to do this. And that's a lot more difficult to examine because it's very easy to just go, ha, demons, fuck them. But then you read that and hey, they're still guilty. Hang them till dead. But you read that and you go, Oh, gee, because I can't relate with a, a Jeffrey Dahmer. I go, yeah, he's evil. Kill him. Give him the electric chair. I can relate with thinking I'm doing something that's right, you know, doing this for my mom, doing this for my brother. And it's disgusting. And to me, it's that much. It makes the Nazis that much more insidious because although comically evil, you also go, oh, Jesus, a lot of them, the creation of the concentration camps, it was because the SS were being traumatized by having to shoot kids. You know, oh, what well, in their testimonials, they actually said, do you know how hard it is to shoot kids all day? And they were like, what about the Jewish kids? They don't think anything of that. 
they felt bad for each other. And that's what led to the gas chambers because it was you didn't have to touch it. All of that to me is like the hydrophobic effect. You know, here's this thing that is evil. And then you go into it and you go, they thought they were looking out for each other. And I'll say for the 10th time, make no mistake, they all, all the Nazis should be lined up and shot in the fucking head. But it's a lot more difficult to realize, oh, Jesus, they, they actually thought they were doing the right thing. And to me, that is what I got out of the Lucifer principle. It's very easy to go, oh, these guys were doing this. This, this empire did that. This, you know, this species of apes was doing this. And then you go and you realize there's this group cohesion. And as you say, it's the your theory that it's not individuals that have pushed natural selection on both the micro and the macro scales of our civilization of the entire biosphere, but rather it's groups. It's the mean. It's how things operate, right? It's it's build back better. It's make America great again. It's hope and change. It's mission accomplished. It's all of these things that push, and a lot of it is they think they're doing the right thing and eviscerating their enemies. And like you talked about the Soviets, you got a little guy, we can beat him up, and that solves all the problems back at home without ever having to address them, right? Uh, you go to school and you, you know, you're a senior and you beat the shit out of some freshmen because it's a lot easier than going, am I being bullied at home? Do I hate myself? You know, what's going on here? And to me, that is the... Just like the beauty of the God problem was you would, in a, in a breath, explain thoroughly how there is no God and yet how there can be no explanation for how there is not. The right. Lucifer principle explained, and this is how I perceive it, perhaps I'm incorrect, explained how all the atrocities in the world were born from some form of social cohesion and not necessarily, and again, this is not to... Uh, excuse the count, the billions of people slaughtered in the name of ideologies in our history. But it was based on rather, look, you know, it's like what Elon Musk said about AI taking over the world. It might not even necessarily hate humans in the same way that we don't necessarily have anything against anthills, but when we want to put in a new highway, bye-bye anthill. That is how I viewed it, is these structures and these memes, these things that permeate the world, like horizontal gene transfer, but with ideas and ideologies, a lot of it was, did you know how you hurt me? And it's like, what are you talking about? We were just building the, you know, the great whatever, the Alexander the Great's empire. Yet it bulldozed villages. It's that's my take on it. And I'm not sure if I'm if I'm hitting it in the way that you uh, meant for it to be received. But that's how I received it, is that really in a sentence, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's this line in the book, um, from our best qualities come our worst. Yes. Um, the Many of the people involved with the Nazi movement were idealists. Um, they were seeking a bigger, greater good on behalf of a social group. Um, those who had seen Lenny Reifenstahl's movies, if you've seen Lenny Reifenstahl's movies, they're perpetually, the camera is perpetually pointed up through Greek columns at the sky. Um, there is a deliberately uplifting vision of what a racially pure paradise would be. And uh, one man's devil is another man's God. Um, Baal in the Bible mm -hmm. is, is a devil. 
But no, he's not a devil. He just happens to be the god of the people next door, yeah. um, of the enemies, of the Phoenicians. And uh, whether you end up participating in killing children the way these Nazi guys did, or you're able to live a life in which you are able to adhere to your moral standards all your life, depends on the culture into which you are born. And every human needs a sense of being caught up in something bigger than his or herself. And if a charismatic leader gives you that sense of being caught up in something higher than yourself, then those forces of social cohesion can go awry. And right now in the United States, for MAGA people, for Trump people, um, people like me, Democrats, liberals, we are the scum of the earth. Mm -hmm. We are what's causing not only all the problems in the United States, we're on a global rampage. Yeah. Plus, we're pet, plus we have sex with children, and we sacrifice those children. Yeah, QAnon, um, yeah. Yeah, um, and we're in a secret conspiracy to run the world. And we invented the hoax of COVID. Yes. That's what, that's what MAGA people believe. So they are seriously talking about exterminating people like me. Um, why? Because every in-group, Margaret Mead said it this way, um, every tribe on earth has a law against murder. Um, the problem is murder is killing another human being. Mm-hmm. And the name of every tribe means human, meaning that it's fair to kill all outsiders. It's just not fair to kill the 35 or 350 or 3,500 members of our tribe. And she said in our time, this was in the 1940s, um, the size of our tribe has grown. So in America, we have 225 million people who are part of our tribe and thus human. And it's only the rest of the world yeah. um, that's expendable because some of them are enemies, like communists. I mean, communist, a communist soldier um, is trying to survive day to day and under orders and trying to justify what he's doing or has already justified what he's doing with a deep belief in what is actually a highly idealistic philosophy, Marxism. Mm -hmm. um, if you are going to, there, there's a poem that influenced me powerfully when I was 16 years old, called Renaissance by Edna St. Vincent Millay. And it basically says, if you are going to be able to perceive the infinite in the tiniest of things, you first need to be able to feel like every kind of suffering human on this planet, no matter what its culture. So, and there's a line from Herman Hesse, who says, we all have a dark closet buried deep inside of us with 10,000 personalities that we could easily have been if the personality that we calls itself me had not emerged to take over. Which means you are capable of understanding these Nazi guys, these Nazi arch killers. You, you have to be capable of putting yourself in their shoes and feeling how they felt um, if you're going to actually have meaningful insight on the world. Back to knowledge. If you're going to be able to carry the gifts of your multiple curiosities back to the world, among those gifts has to be material that comes from your powerful empathy um, with even the people you hate the most. Yes. Because without understanding them, you can't compete with them. 
And without understanding them, you don't understand a vital facet of human nature. Um, and it's our job, I mean, I'm knowledgeable, to pick their own fields. Not all of them are going to be interested in what I'm interested in. My interest is mass behavior, from the mass behavior of quarks, elementary particles, to the mass behavior of human beings. And I see mass behavior all over the place. Um, but you're not necessarily going to be interested in what I'm interested in. But believe me, enlarging your empathic sense of the world around you by understanding all your enemies, as well as you understand all your friends, inside of you, deep here in your empathic center, is going to be vital to the quality of your insight. Yeah. And another thing that you alluded to is that, okay, so we know individuals have hierarchies. In roughly 1905, a guy named Sheldrup Ebbs, his family had a summer home. And at the summer home, there were chickens. And he started watching the chickens all day long. And what he saw was the chickens were arranged in a social hierarchy. There was the top chicken, and she got to go first to the trough to eat. No one dared try to get there before she did. Then came chicken number two to the trough. Then chicken number three. And so on until you got to the last chicken, the bottom chicken on the hierarchy, was the last to eat. There's another curious thing about these, what Sheldrapeb called pecking orders. Um, the chicken on top is allowed to peck every other chicken in the flock. And no chicken is allowed to peck her. Chicken number two is not allowed to peck chicken number one. But she can peck all the other chickens in the flock. Chicken number three can't peck chicken number two or chicken number one. But she can peck everybody until you finally get to the run of the litter who everybody can peck on and who often is totally featherless. Um, well, it turns out that all kinds of animals we study have pecking orders. Um, they're, they go wild throughout the animal kingdom, pecking orders. We're animals. We too have pecking orders. And we don't just have pecking orders of individuals, like who's boss, who's vice president, who's the president, who's the vice president, who are the senators, et cetera. Um, we, groups, humans get into these cohesive groups where it's not allowed to murder one of us, but you can murder one of them, the outsiders. And these groups get into competitions for what? For position, for position in a dominance hierarchy, for position in a pecking order. America, since World War II, has been the number one chicken in the lot. And no one's been allowed to peck on us, although we have had attacks like 9-11. Well, we have been watching that dominance slip ever since 2016. Um, and it's not getting better under Joe Biden, which much to my horror because I'm a Democrat. Um, in fact, it's getting worse because the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a huge pecking order mistake. It was voluntarily going to position number two. Well, who's a position number one then? Chinese, whose values we do not like, um, who, who do not, uh, who don't value human rights at all, who do not value freedom of speech at all. They, in fact, crimp and cramp these things and certainly don't believe in democracy. They're an autocracy run by one man, Xi Jinping, who is trying to become leader for life. Um, and he's doing a very good job of it so far. 
So if our group ceases to be number one and moves down to number two, our values are no longer going to be the dominant values in that pecking order, in that group, because the alpha is the eyes and ears of a society. The top chicken in the pecking order is the eyes and ears of a society. And how we see and what we see is determined by who's on top. And the Chinese, with their autocratic, anti-human rights points of view, are rapidly coming to the top. And other autocracies, like Vladimir Putin's, um, like Duterte's in the Philippines, um, like uh, the Iranian uh, religious oligarchy, where basically the, the Ayatollah at the top is the last word on everything. Um, Syria, which is run by a dictator. Um, Cuba, which has been run by a dictator. We'll see how things settle out now that Fidel is gone and his brother Raul is gone. Venezuela, which is run by a dictator. Dictatorships are the new fad around the world because China is moving into the top position and we're moving into the second position. I don't like that. I want us to move back to number one because we have privileges that we have taken for granted all of our lives without being able to see that the only reason we have those privileges is because we're number one in a pecking order, in a dominance hierarchy. Do we, do we live in a zero-sum world? Is, can, can the very values of tolerance, can that allow us to go forward if China, an aut autocratic dictatorship with 2 million Uyghurs in concentration camps and a social credit system and a surveillance state that makes our own blush, do we, do we have to play the zero-sum game? Do, is it the Lucifer principle? Do we have to destroy them in order to stay number one if we believe, and I do, and I'm with you 100%, with, I mean, it's behind me. <laughs> Do we have to remove China because we know for the greater good that, and that's a dangerous, dangerous term, but I mean, what other powerful militaristic uh, global dominating power has ever championed free speech, um, right to own weapons, right to privacy, which have all been infringed into a point. I get it. But as you were saying, value human rights, value human expression, value uh, not having government overreach, which again has been steadily increasing since 9-11. I, I, I get there are caveats to these. Do we live in a zero-sum world? That's the that's my question for you, Howard. The answer is yes and no. We live in both a zero-sum world and we live in a non-zero-sum world. What does that mean? A non-zero-sum world means that instead of fighting over the, the scraps of pizza, pizza slices, we order a larger pizza. In fact, we grow a larger pizza. And thus, we get our fill of pizza one way or the other. Um, the non, that's the, the um, non-zero-sum world. The zero-sum world is there's no way to get any more pizza except what's in the box. If I take uh, six slices, that leaves you with only two. Um, so here's how we live in both a non-zero-sum and a zero-sum world, in both a growing the pie and it's all a fight over one scrap world. In fact, how the poorest do in our society depends on how high we rise. And I don't just mean on how high one group like the United States rises. I mean how high the global economy rises, period. Okay. Um, because we are constantly growing the pie. Our economy is something like eight times the size it was in the aftermath of World War II. Eight times. 
The Chinese uh, economy has been growing at a rate of six to 10% per year. I think that basically, that gives them the equivalent of an entire South Korea every year added to their economy. Um, and over the course of 10 years, it, it doubles the size of their economy. That, check my arithmetic on that, but it's in that range. However, so this is non-zero sum. The more we produce, the more each individual is able to have, even the homeless guy up the street. The homeless guy up the street in my neighborhood, um, this shows you how when a society, when, it, when a global economy gets richer, that richness trickles down even to the most disadvantaged. The homeless guy up the street had a bicycle. That was impossible in 1840. No such thing existed. Yeah. Um, he had a cell phone. Um, that was something unbelievable, and access to the internet through his cell phone. Um, he had energy shade saving shoes, the advances in shoe technology over the last 40 to 50 years has been utterly astonishing. My shoes weigh about eight ounces. My old shoes used to weigh about two to three pounds. Um, my old shoes were utterly inflexible. Um, they produced things like bunions, permanent mm -hmm. damage to your feet. Um, the new shoes, no, not in the least, never. They're ergonomically designed. And my homeless man up the street, had ergonomically designed um, shoes. Um, and we have new fabrics that are far lighter than old fabrics and provide more insulation. If he had any of those in his, um, in his toolkit, um, in his pack that he carried around, um, then that's a radical advance over what we've had in the past. Um, so enriching the economy globally enriches even the poorest among us. Um, back in um, 1851, there was a guy who was a total technophile. He just loved technology. And he arranged to have all of the countries of the world send their latest technologies to London for an exposition so he could see them firsthand. And he designed a building of the first of its kind made of narrow uh, pieces of steel and all glass. Um, and this exposition was the um, Great Exposition of 1851, um, and it was, and, and the building that was left behind was the Crystal Palace that this guy designed. So here he is, the most powerful, richest person in England. He comes down with a stomach problem at the age of 42, um, and it kills him. Whenever my friend Derek up the street, the homeless man, showed symptoms of an illness like that, walked five blocks to the nearest hospital, checked himself into the emergency room. They gave him an antibiotic and Derek walked out again. Um, so Derek, Prince Albert, who I'm talking about, Queen Victoria's husband, um, Prince Albert died at the age of 42. Derek, the homeless guy up the street, died at the age of 72. That's an extra 30 years. And if you don't think a homeless person is poor and disadvantaged, well, there's something wrong with your way of calculating these things. Um, so the goal is to build the global economy. And the best way to do it is to keep China chugging ahead as fast as it can go and researching new technologies, even though it's stealing an awful mm -hmm. lot of them. And it's working very hard to get beyond what it's stolen and become a world leader. 
and making us race like hell. We, in June, it was roughly June 6th, um, Congress passed a $100 billion bill that nobody seemed to notice. Pacific. And it was, a bill, it was a bill directly aimed at China. It was a bill that aimed to take the key next generation technologies and pump resources into research. So we could stay ahead of China on things like quantum computing. Yeah. Or China yeah. in the last weeks claimed that it now leads the world. Yeah. And that may be true. The problem is, but okay, now when it's when it is zero sum, uh dominance hierarchy has number one, number two, number three, number four slots. And no matter how you grow the pie, you can't grow the number of a number one slots. So only one country can take that number one slot at a time. Okay. That's where animal nature and human nature are built. We are built with dominance hierarchy, all of the things that make us Lego blocks in the dominance hierarchy. Um, so the fight for number one, that's a zero-sum game. The fight to enrich the world, that's a non-zero-sum game. Okay. I. Okay, so it's... So it's it's a pizza, and number one is like we'll call it fifty percent of the pizza. Number two is twenty five, and then goes down and down. But if the pizza is just we're continually, or like like a you know like a a big pot of soup, you know how soon people have the same pot going for thirty years. It's like we're just right. dumping in more potatoes and beef, and like it's now one gallon, ten gallons, fifty gallons. The guy who has fifty percent will always have more of it, but now the guy who has one percent, whereas he used to have a carrot. Now he has a full bowl soup and it's right. okay. In in a way that only Howard Bloom could explain, it is a non-zero, non-non-zero somewhere. Well, remember, <laughs> there's an important Bloomism that I don't think shows up in the Lucifer principle. Opposites are joined at the hip. Zero-sum games and non-zero games would seem to be opposites. Yeah. So they back there both. Imagine a curtain rod and your normal curtain rod has got these little balls on each end. Um, well, little ball number one on one end is non-zero sum. A little ball on the right-hand end is zero sum, but they're both on the same fucking curtain rod. They're both part of the same structure. Yeah, yeah. Opposite joined at the hip. Yeah, there's only a, there's a limited. Yeah, well, I'm not sure if this analogy, but I was gonna say you know there's a limited number of first class seats and there's a lot more business class seats, but we're on the same plane. And if that fuselage breaks, we're all fucking dead. Right, it's that, that's a good analogy, except for the fact that there is no first class. Oh, and there is, uh, but there is a number one. There is always a number one. It's what the Chinese call hegemons, uh -huh. and the Chinese have been after knocking out, making a new world order in which there are no hegemons for thirty years. Well, guess what? They don't really want no hegemons. They just don't want the current hegemon. The United States. Yeah. Why? Because they, over the last 2,200 years, have been the world hegemon. They have sat at the middle of everything and let other nations come to them begging um, for relations with China. That goes back 2,200 years. It goes back to the days when the Chinese were shipping silk to the Roman Empire and charging a fortune um, for it. So... There is only number one number one slot at a time, unfortunately. To tie this into what you were saying earlier about in your center of empathy, 
it makes me think of I've interviewed him twice now. He's I still don't know who he is. It's uh he's in the Israeli special forces, Sayeret. And uh, he has to wear a mask when he does it because other, other countries might prosecute him if he's in because I guess they don't recognize like other countries will say like you're doing war crimes or something. But you're Israel in the middle of a sea of people that want you dead. I get it. But I remember asking him, I was like, I was like, so I'm someone that's never been affected, knock on wood, never been affected by terrorism directly. Right. And I dislike terrorists, I, I would say. I remember asking him, I was like, what is it like for you, a Jewish fighting age male in Israel, in the special forces like you? I mean, they must be the Joker to your Batman, basically like you. And he was like, I was like, like, how much do you despise them? And I remember he says more than I despise them. I feel so bad for them. And I was I kind of paused like an idiot. I was like. What? Like, did you almost like, did you not understand my question? And he goes, don't get me wrong. Like I have to, you can go back and watch these episodes. He goes, I have to kill them. Like they're going to put on a suicide vest and kill my brothers. Right. He goes, but you look at them. They, a lot of them have never heard of nine 11. They don't know what America is. They don't know what a TV is. They've never had any dental care. They've never seen a toothbrush. They don't know what a locking door is. They don't know what shelter is. They make maybe, I don't know, two pennies a week doing something trivial. And then some rich, oftentimes Saudi funded guy comes along and goes, give you a hundred thousand in cash. If you fire an RPG at that American convoy. And that guy knows that that's probably his death sentence, but if he gets a hundred thousand cash, maybe not him. He's his whole life's kind of over. But maybe his daughter. Maybe he can buy a visa for his daughter to not even get to America, just to get to a country with roads and streetlights. And he goes, and I look at that guy who's had nothing, who has no education, who has no. There's no pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There's no bootstraps. There's no material for bootstraps. There's no one above you to teach you what it is to have bootstraps. Everyone dies when they're forty. He goes, I feel for that guy. He goes, because the reality is, is if I grew up there, I mean, are you going to try to tell me with a straight face? You've worked 40 years making two pennies a week and someone offers you a hundred grand to do something, which is a win-win because you either get the money or you're dead and you're off this hell earth. He goes, you take it every time. And he goes, now I have to kill him because he is now coming after my team members. And if we don't stop him, he's going back to our home in Israel. He goes, but I feel for that guy more than anything, because the reality is, is if that guy like me grew up in suburban America with health care, with an education, with two loving parents who are still there for me, who siblings that, you know, uh, support me, who have the ability to buy an iMac to start a podcast, to talk to individuals like you. I have a incredibly rich soil that I have grown up in, and it's. It's, it's, it's impossible for me to really have anything other, but other than success. Everything has been built under, I work hard, but I mean, I make no bones about it. I grew up in the land of milk and honey. I have everything I need and more. And he goes, I feel for that guy. And the reality is, is like, I have to kill him because me feeling bad for him doesn't stop that grown man from firing an RPG. But I think about that a lot. I think about that. And I quote him all the time that that guy who I was without even really realizing it sort of giving him carte blanche to be like, tell me how much you hate these guys. Like you are justified a Jewish soldier living in Israel fighting Hezbollah or Al Qaeda or ISIS. And he was just, I mean, he looked at me, was just like, you could tell he wasn't bullshitting. He was like, I feel bad for him, man. 
He was like, because when I get off, to, you know, when my tour is over, he's like, I get to come back. He's like, you know, Tommy, he's like, I'm, I'm drinking wine, talking to you, and I'm going to go to the bar after this, get turned down by hot women, but at least I get to try. He was like, that guy doesn't get any of that. That guy has never worn shoes in his life, and he has an AK that his grandpa gave his dad that gave him. I mean, and I always think about that, about how anyone could have sympathy for anyone. The fact that in, he goes by T, that's all I know, is what you call him T. The fact that T has that sympathy and empathy for fucking Hezbollah militants has really forced me to open my heart when I see someone that I disagree with on any level less than a Jewish soldier and a terrorist. I'm like, what are they going through? What are they doing? And maybe it's not even they're going through something. Maybe they just grew up in a different family in a different time. Just like I'm from New England. So I, I don't like sports, but theoretically I should like the Red Sox and you're in New York, correct? So theoretically you should like the Yankees. Not, one of them, it's not objectively better than the other. We just, you just grew up in a different time and your uncles are all wearing Red Sox hat and you, you remember being little and watching the games at night. And so, yeah, you have a fond memory of them. It doesn't make you an evil person. And yes, I mean, terroristic ideologies are objectively evil. But at the same time, if I could be so clearly molded, you know, someone meets you and they're like, you're your father's son. Well, then clearly, if you're born in a shithole, a war-torn shithole who, hey, we're not doing anything to help because they've got all the fucking oil. Yeah, why wouldn't the war-torn shithole produce someone who looks and acts like they were raised in a war-torn shithole. And I think that applies to us, and it also applies to us as a nation. Like, hold on, who else is in the world? Is it, we're America, we don't kill Americans, but those brown people overseas bomb them to hell? Like, no, 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 no. No. Like, what are they going through? Why are they there? If I was living in Vietnam and I was 10 years old, I'd probably also be working in some garment factory to make money. Like, what are we doing? What are we looking at? I don't really know where I'm going with this, Howard, but I'm kind of ranting. We're we're looking at something that has a dimension that you didn't go into. I mean, what you just said was brilliant, was terrific. And yes, expanding your empathic muscle so it can comprehend at a gut level, at an emotional level, as many people as you can, including your enemies, the people who want you dead, is powerfully important. Um, But opposites are joined at the hip. And the greatest information synapse that's established between two groups is war. Because in war, one group has to learn, well, to walk in the other group's shoes. So it can anticipate the other group's moves. Um, Walking in the other's shoes is a way to win a war is something that comes from, oh God, what is his name again? The, the Chinese... Sun Tzu. Uh, Sun Tzu, right. Sun Tzu. Um, but meantime, there's a whole dimension of the experience of being a terrorist that's missing from the conversation and must be entered into the conversation if we're really going to put ourselves in the shoes of a Hezbollah terrorist. And it's that if a poor guy... Um, has the chance to blow up a bunch of Israelis, um, that he's been attention starved all his life. People have not paid attention to him at all because he's on the bottom of society. And this makes him a martyr. And a martyr gets attention. People put the pictures of a martyr on their walls. Mm -hmm. There's a greater form of attention 
and a greater form of reward than the 100,000, whatever they are, units of money. Um, life is short in the Muslim point of view um, and difficult. And it's a test to see if you can follow God's will. Um, but, uh, and if you can do good, and good means killing by people, among other things. Um, but there is another stretch that it makes the stretch of lifetime seem infinitesimal. And it's heaven or hell. And heaven or hell are eternal. And because they are eternal, first of all, when you become a martyr, a shaheed, um, you are given... For other people, it is difficult to get into heaven. It is hard to avoid hell. But you are given an express ticket to heaven, an express ticket to paradise. And you are getting the attention that only aristocrats receive every single day because you live in the palace of God himself. And the rooms are have rubies and emeralds. And the place has gardens. It's the most gorgeous place you've ever seen. And But every element of its gorgeousness says, I am alpha. Yeah. I am at the top of the pecking order. Yeah. Um, so you go to the top of the pecking order. Now, what is one of the greatest fruits of being at the top of a pecking order? Well, take 10, uh, 20 mice, 10 males and 10 females, and put them in a cage together and watch what happens. Um, among the 10 males... The strongest, the most dominant, will beat the shit out of the other nine males. Then, when it comes time for mating, and you can test the babies to see who, who fathered them, and the dominant male fathered all of them. Yeah. Sex is one of the primary privileges of alpha status, of being at the very top of the pecking order for males. And you, as a shaheed, as a martyr, who has gained martyrdom, look, your martyrdom is scored on the number of people you can kill. Um, you get 72 virgins. That is not um, a fantasy. Yes, of course, it's a fantasy. It's Muhammad's fantasy. Yeah. Um, that is reality in the mind of a potential shaheed. So he's working for a bigger payoff than 100,000 yes. dinar, shekels, or whatever, lira, whatever they happen to be. A much much, much bigger payoff. And he's looking for the kind of attention that goes with having risen to the very top of the dominance hierarchy. Living with God is a big deal. That means you are on top of the heap. Okay. So there are all kinds of rewards. Look, it took me 40 years of researching Islam and then writing a book, The Muhammad Code, How a Desert Prophet Brought You uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS, and Boko Haram, um, to figure this out, to find the original Muslim sources from which all of this comes, and to discover that in Muhammad's Islam, uh, the more unbelievers you kill, the higher you rise. So that's something that can't be cured with giving someone sandals and a roof and dental care. Right, absolutely. It's a belief system. I mean, look, the, the, the Republicans in the United States have been willing to sustain 740,000 deaths. Those deaths have almost all, 1,500 of them, have been among vaccinated people. The other 740,000 
have been among unvaccinated people. So Republicans, MAGA people, are willing to take 700,000 deaths um, if they can stick to their belief system. And their belief system is that we live in this world of evil with people like George Soros and me trying to take over the world um, and, and subject your children to, be, to having sex with us elites and then to be sacrificed by us elites. Sacrifice, so that's yeah. the point of view, but, but the most important thing is there is a savior. Uh, and his name is Donald Trump. And he will save us from this communist totalitarian attempt to take over the world for pederasts, for yeah. child molesters, for child rapers. Um, and that gives you hope. And you're willing to sustain 740,000 deaths if that's what it takes to hold on to that ray of hope. The one instant pill that will solve all problems. Donald Trump in power for life. And then in Trump's own fantasy, Trump brood in power for life, establishing a dynasty like a person he admires, Kim Jong-un, um, in North Korea. So there you have the hierarchy at work. Um, you have the pictures of the invisible world. Okay, what are pictures of the invisible world? Very important in the Lucifer principle. Um, we all deal with invisible things every day. For one thing, you cannot see the American flag behind you. You know it's there, but how do you know it's there? Because it's a fantasy in your head. It's been reconstructed in your head like virtual reality. Mm -hmm. um, so you are believing in something that you do not actually see right now. That flag right now is, in, is visible to you only in memory and only in fantasy. But it is not visible to your eyes at this moment. Um, you probably believe in things like viruses, You've never seen one. You've seen pictures, but you've never seen one. Yeah. Um, cholesterol, um, another thing you've never seen. You probably have never seen it even in pictures. I believe in Howard Bloom, but I've never met you. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely true. I'm a packet of electrons um, right now. So we all have pictures of that invisible world that we cannot see. When the Eskimos construct this astonishingly effective device called the igloo, which keeps them warm in one of the most freezing places on the very face of the earth. They know how they did it. They did it by appeasing ancestors with a little step that leads up into the igloo with a little hole in the mm -hmm. roof, the right spot. All of that um, worked wonders on an invisible world, the world of the ancestors, the world of the spirits. We, on the other hand, explain it with thermodynamics. Well, have you ever seen a thermodynamic? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. And you say that in your book. You're like, you explain convection to them, and they're like, no, it's the ancestors. Right, exactly. So the basic idea is that in order to move from one second to the next in life, we need pictures of the invisible world in which we have faith. And each subculture and each culture has its own picture of the invisible world. And the picture of the invisible world in Islam is radically different from the secularist modern picture of the world in the Western world, radically different, because it has that entire dimension of something that dwarfs life. Okay. 
um, and that is the afterlife. Hell, Muhammad was a vicious man. Oh, yeah. A truly vicious man. And so he expended a great deal of time on trying to make hell as scary as possible. And among other things in hell, in the Muslim hell, you are roasted over a spit until your, fins, your skin falls off. Now imagine what that would feel like in terms of the pain inside of you and the screaming that would come out of you totally involuntarily. And then when your skin falls off, you are given another skin so you can feel those pains all over again. And that goes on until the day of judgment. So the Muslim calculations about uh, reward and punishment, um, about pluses and minuses, um, is radically different from yours or mine. And it is crucial in this world for us Americans to understand just how very different the different pictures of the world around us are. Because one day, when I was representing Billy Joel, I persuaded Billy Joel's people to give me a really advanced copy, months in advance, of his upcoming album. And then I called Ken Emerson at Newsweek. And I was in Boston. And I said, Ken, if I show up tomorrow with this advanced copy of an album that I'm not supposed to have, will you listen to it and tell me what you think? And Ken said, yes. So we arranged for me to fly up to Boston um, and have lunch with him at a restaurant near his house the next day. And Ken said to me, look, you and I both know that if we sat down with an Arab, with a Muslim, we would rapidly discover that his values are absolutely the same or yours and mine. He wants to protect his family. He wants a future for his kids, etc." And I had to sit there and say nothing. Because even then, when I had when I'd only done a small amount of research compared to the amount that I later did on Islam, I knew that wasn't true. I knew that the Arab worldview, the Arab picture of the invisible world, the Muslim picture of the invisible world, was vastly different from ours. And what Ken was saying was a form of cultural arrogance. He was basically saying, we have the only culture in the world. So our culture explains all of human nature. Um, it is what comes naturally out of us. Of course, human rights are in us because they're in us, um, not because they're a cultural artifact. No, I'm sorry, they're a cultural artifact. And, and if you fail to understand that if you sit down with a cup of coffee and have an honest conversation with a person from a different culture, you will often discover a radically different picture of the invisible world, which makes daily decisions radically different propositions and calculations, like calculating, how is this going to affect me in the afterlife? Okay. So it's, it's like, uh, it's like us, you know, we're both explorers and Howard thinks the world's flat. And I think it's, a, a, I think it's a sphere. And I look at like, Hey, let's go try to find more land for the queen. We're going to sail that way. Whereas you, even if we don't discuss it in your mind, you're like, I'm not fucking going that way. That's the edge of the world. I'm f but right. it radically changes where we operate. You know, uh, I, I'm friends with a guy that I've had on a lot, Delta Force, uh, Dale Comstock. And he talks about when he would work with, uh, you know, they would recruit Afghanis to work with them in the middle. And I know I got you for five more minutes and they'd work with them in the Middle East. And he was like, just the differences in like, you look at the moon, you know, you look up the moon and everyone's while you're like, man, I can't believe we actually sent guys up there, you know, and it's just crazy. And you see it and versus, you know, 
one of the Afghanis once said, he's like, wait, what did you say? He goes, you know, America sent guys up there in 1969. Can you believe that? And the Afghanis started laughing at him and said, I can't believe you believe that. And because he thought he's like, oh, this guy believes in the moon hoax conspiracy. The Afghani guy, he holds up his hand and he goes, that's not big enough to hold somebody. (laughs) And you go, oh, we're not like we're not in the same reality. And so I can see Justin in only the way you can. I'm in here going, here's this guy talking about, you have to have empathy. Here's someone that doesn't have running water. And you're saying, dude, it's farther than that. It is, we live in different, we're living in, I believe in germ theory and you don't. And you use a butcher knife to cut someone open and then you start to operate on me. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing with that blade? You better dip that in ethanol. And you're like, what? I wiped it off. What's your problem? It's, the, the realities aren't even comparable. No, and they're not comparable. And your analogy, um, you're bringing up a, a radical shift in pictures of the invisible world that started to happen around 1600 mm-hmm. um, when we abandoned when we abandoned the flat Earth idea and went with the or we abandoned the idea that the sun and moon rotate around the Earth and picked up another picture of how the invisible world works that the Earth revolves around the sun. That was a radical difference in a worldview, a radical difference in a picture of the invisible world. But there's another shift in pictures of the invisible world that happened around 1720, 1750. um, And that was, up until then, the Europeans had also believed that life is extraordinarily short and is a test. And that what comes after it is infinite. And it's heaven and hell. Um, so all calculations were had, had to have that infinity of heaven and hell in mind. Um, and we got out of that around 720 to 780 with a new secularized version of the invisible world. Uh, the old picture of the invisible world had a heaven, had a hell, had a God, and life was a test. Um, in the new picture, there was no heaven. There was no hell. These were irrelevant. We had been given certain gifts by Newton, and we could use those tools of Newton to understand everything without any gods moving anything, without gods moving the sun, moving the moon, without gods creating the planet, without any of that stuff. And a new kind of religion was born. Up until then, religion was totalitarian. It held sway over every cell of your being. It was complete. If you strayed from it, you could go to hell. In the new view, religion was something you could put in a shoebox, take out on Sunday, go to church, put back in its shoebox, and put it back in the back of the closet again, and go back to your secular point of view. Well, now we are so accustomed to the shoebox vision of religion that we think that's what religion is. We think that when you mention a foreign religion like Islam, you're talking about a shoebox religion. No, you are not. You are talking about the old kind of religion that Europeans had up until about 1720, in which religion is totalitarian. Religion does invade every core of your being in which people could legitimately be afraid of eating a lettuce leaf in a salad because there might be demons lurking underneath that leaf 
and that leaf might be the transport vehicle with which demons will enter your body. Um, so because we don't know history, and because we're so fucking culturally arrogant, and we think that our particular invented approach to things like LGBTQ rights, sure. which is another Western invention, peace movements, another Western invention, we think these things are universal because we are stupid. Because we are too stupid to actually open our minds and try to learn what the cultures are like of other people. However, there's a problem in that. I have also been working to understand Chinese culture since approximately 1965. And I don't get it. I spent three days in Chengdu, China, lecturing on harvesting solar power in space and bringing it to Earth. And I still just don't understand. I cannot, I can put my, I can put myself in the mind and the emotions of a terrorist, mm -hmm. a terrorist. But I cannot put myself in the shoes and hearts and emotions of Chinese, even though I have a Chinese house guest who's been living with me for three years now. Um, and it frustrates me because until I understand that, I don't understand everything. Well, you are telepathic because I, no one can see my hands when I'm doing the podcast, but whenever I have like a couple points I want to bring up, I put up a finger. One of the points right. was when are you going to write a book on China? Because I've had on Gordon Chang, I've had on Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, uh, you know, Chang's the, the coming collapse of China, Spaulding, the stealth right. war. Um, I, I'm fascinated by it and the shifting of, right, the world hegemon powers never asked the way to the king's cauldrons, all these things. Right. And then you talking about studying Islam. I was going to ask, when are you going to write a China book? Well, unfortunately, I'm 78. I have a limited amount of time. Howard, I don't, I don't want to hear it. Because on Monday, <laughs> I, on Monday, I interviewed John R. Halderman, who's 87 right. years old and who was a, a Marine working security at the Castle Bravo thermonuclear test in 52. And he right. is as sharp as you. So Me. you've got at least nine years. So I don't want right. to hear that excuse. I'm working on the case of the sexual cosmos. Everything you know about nature is wrong. I'm up to chapter 31. Okay. Um, and uh, then I have to do the grand unified theory of everything in the universe, including sex, violence, and the human soul. So I tie my work together for you so you know why I think all of these things relate. Although I've explained why they all relate in a page on the Howard Bloom Institute website and a page on my website, on the howardbloom.net website. Uh, again, that, that, uh, those two addresses, for those who are interested, are Howard Bloom, all one word, .net, uh, no, no, stop, stop. Howardbloom.institute. And the other one, my personal site, is uh, howardbloom.net. So, and you'll find a statement that shows, I mean, look, my field is mass human behavior. You might ask me, why did you write an entire book on Islam? Islam is the biggest em em imperial religion, imperialistic religion the world has ever seen. Mm -hmm. And one of the leading experts on imperialism from Harvard um, went on television once and said, no imperialist movement has ever conquered the hearts and minds of the people that it subdued. And she's wrong. Because Islam, the Islamic empire, has a hold on the hearts and minds of 1.8 billion people spread all the way from Malaysia, something like 3,800 miles across all of Asia and Europe to Algeria, Morocco, Nigeria, etc. And it has worked 
spy season the hearts and minds um, of people. So she is dead wrong. But so why write a book about Islam? Because my field is the mass behavior of human, uh, uh, mass behavior from the mass behavior of parks to the mass behavior of human beings. That's why I've written about the evolution of the cosmos, cosmology, um, quantum physics, and things like this, because they're all manifestations of mass behavior, just as the chickens are manifestations of mass behavior. And you can see the chickens' hierarchies, the pecking orders, at work in Islam, where it's, Muhammad says, unless you get off your fat ass, off your couch, and go out and kill unbelievers sometime in your lifetime, you have no guarantee whatsoever of getting to heaven. You have not done good in the eyes of Islam. Why? Because Islam's view under Muhammad was world conquering. God made this planet from a clot of mud. So surely this is God's world. Um, God made man from a clot of, clot of blood. So man has an obligation. to Take God's only truth through the whole world. And, but that form of truth is not just a belief system. It is a governmental system. It is a religious tyranny. Um, when, when Muhammad had critics, he had them killed in the middle of the night. All of them. And doing things the way Muhammad did them, following directly in his footsteps, is the way to be a good Muslim. So Islam is a totalitarian system. That involves the court system, it involves the police system, it involves everything. Because everything has to be arranged according to the way Muhammad um, arranged things in Medina, which was a Jewish town he took out, or a Jewish town he was welcomed into when he felt the people in Mecca, his hometown, were about to kill him. And eventually he ended up sidelining the Jews and killing his Jewish critics and taking over the town and being anti-Semitic and saying that Jews are the sons of pigs and monkeys um so fuck him in my opinion <laughs> yes absolutely no it's, it's Jewish. Yeah. but at any rate so here's a whole belief system that tells you to go out and kill and conquer the world on behalf of a belief system that wants to own the world that feels it has the right to own the world we're blind to this kind of thing that's crazy and i even i with my 60 years of curiosity about china have not been able understand it here in my empathic that i was gonna say yeah okay so not understanding islam from that standpoint is like trying to appease hitler it's it's well it's, what i was actually trying to get at and forgot my point um is that if we don't understand islam if we don't understand china then we do not truly understand mass behavior from the mass behavior reports the mass behavior of human beings. Yes. The evolution of the cosmos is all about mass behavior. Quantum physics is wrong because it doesn't take into account mass behavior. Um, that was the essence of the piece that my uh, collaborator in theoretical physics, Pavel Karakin, the College Institute of Applied Mathematics in the Russian Academy of Sciences. That is the essence of the piece that we wrote. That is the essence of the speech I gave at an international conference on quantum physics in Moscow. Um, in 2005 or something like that. How do these things relate to understanding the Chinese and the Muslims? Because they're all manifestations of mass behavior. The evolution of galaxies is mass behavior and the biggest scale you can possibly imagine. The self-organization of stars is mass behavior. 
the organization of solar systems is mass behavior, and the organization of Islam and China are forms of mass behavior. You really want to understand mass behavior, social behavior, you need to understand them all. And I'm still missing China. Well, to me, that just sounds like now all I want is for you to write because if Howard Bloom can't, the guy who can tie in quarks to honeybees, if you can't understand China, all that does is make me want it more. I demand a book. And I was going to say <laughs> your telepathic abilities have gone up because, as I said, one of the points was about China. I literally I don't know if you can see it, but I keep lists every day of everything I'm supposed to look at. Amazing. Number 16, I wrote it down last night. Ask Howard Bloom if he has a theory of everything. And you just said you're working on it. So your telepathic abilities are off the charts. And it's uh, <laughs> that's brilliant. What I did want to say, though, is I just meant to say it earlier. A way for me to understand it is is growing up in a Catholic household and every Sunday we went to church. Sure, on you know, in the night we would say prayers with my mom, but every Sunday, right, put away the Legos, stop the cartoons, we all put on a collared shirt, we go to church, we're back in an hour, and then we're watching the football game. That is how we perceive religion versus we ne- versus English. We're talking English the whole time, Monday through Monday through Sunday, we're talking English. Right. That is Islam. They don't put it in the shoebox. It's they're breathing oxygen and talking English. That's Islam. It's through and through it's heaven hell there is no all right see you next week at church father it's morning to, it's morning to morning night to night well plus if i and ali hersey was correct i and ali hersey grew up in sudan she describes in one of her books her upbringing and you know how when there's you cease doing a chore your mind wanders around and uh goes collecting all the fights you've ever had and god knows what else um, strange preoccupations. Um, well, in the Islam, I and Ali Hersey was taught, you are not allowed, your, you cannot allow your mind to do that. In those moments between things, you must have words of the Quran going through your mind at all times. When the Taliban talks about being willing to educate girls up to eighth grade level or something like that, they're not talking about what you think of as education and what I think of as education, secular education. They're not talking about history, geography, etc. They are talking about making kids memorize a Quran so that in all of their spare minutes, they can have the Quran blotting out everything else in their mind. Jeez. So that's a radically different way to live a life on a minute-to-minute basis than you and I have ever conceived. That that just hits it even harder home. You're right, right? Because... I listen to audio and every day I make sure to meditate. I per- I purposely make sure to drop all thoughts. And you're saying they don't even do that. No, your stream of consciousness is to never not be focused on the. Okay. All right. So it's okay. So it's not even compare. It's apples and oranges. It's, 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 it's matter and antimatter. It's, it can't even. Well, now, Xi Jinping, the guy who wants to be mm-hmm. China's leader for life. He's like Mao Zedong, he's taken a whole bunch of his writings and put them in a little book. You have to memorize if you're Chinese. Um, he has inserted his the Chinese dream, his visions for China in the Chinese constitution. So he's taking control of the Chinese constitution, personal control. Um, he's putting himself in the kind of authoritarian position that Mao Zedong had and that Deng Xiaoping had, which means... He wants to control your thoughts the way that Islam 
controls the thoughts of its believers. Jesus. It's just... It's insane. You, you're right. And the reason why we can have this idea of LGBTQ and peace movements is because we're behind the wall of, of hegemony, of being top chicken in the pecking order. Right. None of this will continue if we are not in that spot. No, uh, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, said one of the um, revolutionary founding fathers. And he's right. If you don't fight for it every day, um, you're not going to have these freedoms. They, we, we went without them for the first uh, the 200,000 years of uh, the history of Homo sapiens, and we could easily go without them again. Or, to quote, to quote an NFL player who I don't know, success isn't owned, it's, it's leased, and rent is due every day. Yes, that's a very good one. That's a very good one. I have kept you 13 minutes longer than I said I would because I'm a terrible person who can't be trusted. <laughs> no, you Mr. How, I was going to say, la- last note is you're saying about the, the Lenny Riefenstahl, how it's the, the camera's always pointing up, looking at the columns. I just think right. it's funny because with you, I'm talking to you and the camera angles, like I can see kind of like the ceiling. And so right. it's always, and you're in a big leather chair and there's this sort of reminiscence of, of like growing up and like sitting on the floor and like talking to like my grandpa in his big leather chair. You're my honorary grandfather because all my grandparents have passed. You're Mitzi Purdue is my honorary grandmother and you're my honorary grandfather. You sit here and I, and I bring up my ideas and then you tell me how it really is. And I fucking love it. Well, I love your ideas. You do a terrific job of uh, emphasizing things. I, I, I hope to one day to be like you. And it's, that's the purpose of the Howard Bloom Institute. But that's what I love is, just like Newton saved you, reading your books makes me feel like, A, I'm either not crazy or B, I am crazy, but at least there's one other person who's as crazy as me. And that is Howard Bloom. I will let you go, sir. The Lucifer Principle, available on Audible, Amazon, all that good stuff. I'll put it in the description. I also put the Howard Bloom Institutes and your personal website in the description. As always, Mr. Bloom, it is such a fucking pleasure to talk to you. I love talking to you. I love you as a person. I legitimately do. I, I'm so thankful you're in my life. And um, thank you for everything. Well, thanks, Tommy. Yes, sir. All right. Have a great night. I'll see you next time. You as well. God bless. Take care, everybody. Recording stopped.